So we are uh, putting a wrap on Romans 9 today. Woo, yeah, like, praise the Lord, hallelujah. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, so we've been in it for a while, um, and, and today, uh, w- 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 you know, we've been climbing this, this mountain, and, and uh, you know, we're going to stop. We're gonna, after Romans 9, after today, we're going we're gonna to move into kind of our summer series on Exodus uh, and you're like, wait, 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 what about Romans 10? Have no fear, right? Come the fall, we will dive back into Romans 10 and, um, and, and get back after uh, the, the book. Uh, but we're going to break, do some Exodus stuff. We'll do something different next week and then start Exodus. Um, and uh, that's kind of uh, where we'll be the next couple weeks. But just wanted to let you know that. And and remind you that Wednesday, this Wednesday, say Romans 9 has just got you all bum-fuzzled, and, and uh, you're like, I don't know anything you said. Welcome to club. Sometimes i like, what did I say? You know, uh, but we're having a Q&A session on Romans 9, uh, and so if you've like, man, you want to be a part of that, please come. It's going to be at our Smyrna campus at 6 p.m., and you can submit questions on the app. You can submit questions on the website, um, and we will deal with those questions. We're going to wrestle with those questions and, and, uh, and get to as many of those as we can. We've already had some good questions asked, so I encourage you, jump on that and, uh, and um, uh, make sure you, you participate if you want to. Uh, so where we've been in Romans 9, what you've seen so far, you've seen Paul very passionate about his brothers, his Jewish brothers being saved. Uh, you, we've seen him uh, explain that the promises of God um, are not, have not failed, right? Because a lot of Jews were not coming to Christ. And so Paul says, no, the promises of God stand true. But not all of Israel, nationalistic Israel, is true Israel, meaning those that are being saved. And so we've studied that the sovereignty of God in salvation, it's, it's up to him. It's granted by him. It's up to him to choose to give mercy on whom he will give mercy. And, and that true Israel, those that are saved by Jesus, are, is not an ethnically based thing, uh, but it is based on those who believe by faith in Jesus, which is many of us in this place. And so if that little blurb got your bloomers in a bunch and you don't understand what's going on, right, go back to the app, watch, watch some of the sermons. You're like, I have no idea what he just said. Go back to and watch uh, the Overwhelming Grace series. It'll bring a lot more clarity to that. Uh, and then today, what we're going to deal with is, is, is Paul's last question, really, line of questioning in Romans 9. So what that question is then is, all right, well then who, on whom is God going to show mercy? Who is God going to save? Who are the promises of God for? Is it a particular ethnic people? Uh, and, and how are they going to be saved? And, and that's kind of what Paul is dealing with in, in, in here, okay? And so let's start reading. We're going to start reading in verse uh, 24 of Romans 9, Romans chapter 9, verse 24. We're starting in a weird place. I'll explain a little bit of that, but try to catch us up just a hair. Uh, but let's read at the end, uh, 9:24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. All right, let's stop. So Paul, in, in verse 24, is concluding a thought that, uh, of God showing mercy on a particular people, on a particular people and is clarifying who, he's, who those mess, uh, vessels of mercy are. And he says, the vessels of mercy are those whom God calls, the ones he calls to be saved. And, um, and so here he states that some Jews, though not all, 
will be saved by God. And he says, and many Gentiles will be saved by God, will be called and saved by God. Now, this is a very shocking statement. It was shocking to the Jews because they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa you're letting the Gentiles in. That's not normal. It was shocking to the Gentiles because they're like, whoa, 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 you're letting us in? That's awesome, right? It was shocking all around that God would include a people that were not Jewish. And in that day, it was just absolutely anti kind of how everyone thought it worked. Uh, everyone thought salvation was based, ethnically based, based on uh, y- your national heritage. And, and, and the Jews thought it was all them, right? And that God saves based on nationality and based on works. And, and only the Jews could really do the works because they're the only ones who had the law. And so the Jews thought they were good uh, because they were, they, they were completely Jewish, right? They thought they were good to go because they were Jews from head to toe. Was that lame? Yeah, okay, it's too lame. A uh, little rhyming. I used to be a rapper. That's a, just kidding. So Paul, in the next 20, 25, verse 25 through 29, is going to give some Old Testament quotes to, to show that the Gentiles are being included into the kingdom of God. And that's where, that's where we're going to settle in for a little bit here. So let's read the first one. Uh, 25 through 26 says, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, so Paul is going to use Hosea, the story of Hosea and Gomer, as his example of God's mercy to the Gentiles. Uh, the Gentiles were not the people of God, and God was going to make them his people. And matter of fact, Paul's ministry, that was Paul's ministry, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He, he left Jerusalem, he left Israel, and went to Rome, went to Corinth, went to Ephesus, went to all these different pagan uh, Gentile nations to preach the gospel, to plant churches. And so that's what uh, Paul's ministry was all about. And the Gentiles did not initially receive the covenantal promises of God. But, and God had not made a people out of the Gentiles. But here he's beginning to say, I'm going to make a people out of the Gentiles. And that the Gentiles are now what the scripture refers to as be grafted in, be, be planted in, be, be sown into the promises of God. So that the Gentiles now, as equally as the Jews, can claim the promises that God made to Israel as their own promises. Now, this is encouraging for us, right? Because we are, most of us, if not all of us, Gentiles. And so if we are, in fact, in fact, saved by him, if we've been called by God and saved by him, then we too can say, okay, the promises that we read in the scripture that God gives to the Israelites, that God gives to his people are now promises on us, promises that we've been grafted into, promises that because we are true Israel can partake in, even though we are not nationalistic Jewish right? But now we've been grafted into the promises of God, and God is our Father, and we are His children. And so this is a great thing uh, that he's expressing through um, Hosea here, and, and, and specifically the story of Hosea and Gomer. And I want to talk about this Old Testament principle, this Old Testament story, because what, what he does in Hosea is the Israelites have, had walked far away from God, had not, been, had not been worshiping God, and God says, okay, you're not my people. And so 
through Hosea and Gomer, he shows them this whole analogy, and he makes them again his people. He makes them, he has compassion on them. And so, essentially, Paul is saying, okay, what God did for you, Jewish people, he's going to do again for the Gentiles. When he took a people who was not his people and made him his people, he's going to do that again for the Gentiles. So he's, he's, he's comparing the two here. And, and so the, the Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer, um, let, let me give you a little backstory. Okay, so Hosea uh, was the man. Okay, Hosea, if you never heard this, Hosea, God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. Now, not awkward yet, except for you have to marry a chick named Gomer, right? Um, but then what you don't realize is Gomer is a prostitute. So God, and I know this blows all of your traditional, like, whatever out of the water, but God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer. Uh, and he does this because he wanted to show in this marriage a picture of Israel to God. Because he's saying that, okay, just like Hosea and Gomer and Gomer prostituting herself out to other lovers, Israel has done that to me. Israel has prostituted themselves out to other gods. They have forgotten their first love. They've forgotten their husband, and they have, they have poured themselves out to other lovers. And that's us too, right? We were all that person. We were all that. We all prostituted ourselves out to other lovers, to other gods, to other uh, loves in this world before we came to Christ. We all did that. And so, but here's the analogy. He's showing, the, he's showing uh, Israel what their relationship was like with God. And Hosea refused to divorce Gomer despite her unfaithfulness. So Hosea stands true to, to what God has called him to do. And, and, and showing how God stays true to his promises to Israel. Now, they had three children. Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. Okay? Jezreel meant the God who sows. So essentially, he was saying, all right, you're going to name your kid Jezreel, and I, I'm bringing a curse and, and judgment and punishment, and I'm going to annihilate, I'm going to sow judgment and punishment on all the northern tribes of Israel. Yeah, that's happy, right? Yay, our kid's born. <laughs> all right. Second one, he calls Lo-Ruhamah, which means no compassion. And the third child, Lo-Ami, means not my people. Now, these are not going to be in the top 10 baby names of 2016, right? If you're, like, pregnant in here, you're having a baby, don't go there, right? Find something else. And I wouldn't go with Gomer either. Go somewhere, all right? Uh, Abby's a good one, just putting that out there. Uh, uh, that's my daughter's name, in case you didn't know. So after, after they had had these children, Gomer again leaves Hosea and begins to prostitute herself out again. So they've had the children. They, she did good for a while, and then she, she, she runs away from Hosea. She begins to prostitute herself out to other lovers. And she gets to the point so bad uh, in her, is her situation that she is being sold on the slave market. She's been auctioned off on the slave market. Now, God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, go and buy back your wife. Can you imagine the scene? Hosea walks up. And, and literally his wife is on the auction block. And, and there's a caller there, and he says, do I, do I hear $30? Yeah, I've got $30. Do I hear $50? Yeah, $50. And Hosea walks up and interrupts everyone. He says, I'll give everything I have. It's my wife. It's my bride. Now, this is a beautiful story 
and a beautiful analogy of how Christ went to the cross to buy back his bride. He went to the cross to say, I'll give everything I have, and he purchased back his bride. A bunch of people who prostitute themselves out to other lovers, he said, they're mine. I don't care. I don't care how bad they've been. I don't care what they've gotten into. They are mine, and I'm buying them back. And and so here's the beautiful story. Hosea going and purchasing Gomer. After he rescues her, he redeems her. God changes the name of their children. Jezreel becomes no longer God who sows punishment and and death. It becomes God who sows a people and, and growing their land again. Lo Ruhamah, he drops the negative off both the other children's names, so no compassion becomes compassion. Not my people becomes my people. Do you see the beautiful gospel story here that when God saves you, he buys you back, though you were on the auction block prostituting yourself out, and he begins to change your name. You had no compassion. Now by my blood, by my cross, I have compassion. You are not my people. Now I've bought you back and you are my people. You're my children. You're my bride that I'm coming back for. And so here you have this great picture of really the gospel and God showing a, a restoration of relationship uh, with, with, with Israel. And so Paul's referencing this. Why does Paul reference this? He's saying the Gentiles are, are going to be that bride, are going to be in, that, in those promises. And specifically, uh, it, it is pointing to the grace and the mercy of God on, on sinners that did not deserve it on a people that, that, that were not his people but became his people. A people that had the wrath of God resting on them and all of a sudden, because of the cross, now have compassion resting on them. And so Paul has given this uh, picture so that we can know that the, that the Gentiles are in. And specifically, we have, again, great reason to praise God because most of us are not Jewish heritage. Some of you may be, but I'd say most of us, if not all of us, are not Jews, so we have great praise to be had towards God for his inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of God, that we could be the one that Jesus looks over and says, that's my bride, I'll give everything I have for her. And so we have great reason to praise God for we have been included in on the salvation of God for those that are in Christ and him alone. Okay, now let's read the other, uh, so he can talk about the remnant of Jews. Verse 27 through 29 And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left an offspring, we would have all been like, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, again, Here is the next example of God's mercy to save some Jews, a remnant of Jews. Paul being being the very beneficiary of that promise. Paul was Jewish. And so God says, I I will harden some Jews' heart for the sake of the Gentiles coming in the kingdom, but not all of them. So he has mercy on some of the Jews to draw them into his kingdom. Notice, again, the grace of God being the only thing that saved anyone, right? If God had not left any offspring, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's crazy. You understand what he's saying here. If God had not 
made a remnant of people to save. We would all suffer the same punishment as the most wicked cities to ever be on the face of the planet. So none of us deserve salvation. None of us earned it. It's by the mercy and the grace of God that he doesn't rain down fire on us now. It's by his grace and mercy to save a particular people for himself, to save any of us. And so if God doesn't show mercy, then we experience death and judgment. So we see that salvation is from God's great mercy, not from anything in us. And salvation brings us into personal relationship with him. And notice here that salvation now extends to all types of people. Uh, whether pagan or religious, no matter the ethnicity. Now, two things I want you to get from this. One is no one is too messed up, jacked up for God to save. God can come in to any heart, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what your upbringing, no matter what your sin, God can come in and redeem. Doesn't matter. God has that power to show mercy on, those, on our lives in that way. Second thing I want you to see here is uh, the kingdom of God is uh, racially diverse. Heaven is racially diverse. And so the sin that is racism will be obliterated in heaven. And therefore, the church should, it should not be allowed anywhere in the church as well. And so one of our core, uh, should be our core values, one of our things we treasure around here is diversity. We want our church to look like heaven. We want our church to honor God. And so the sin that is racism dies upon entering this middle school. <laughs> this place, this church, these people, we are one. Remember the verse where Jesus says, there's no longer uh, uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male, female. What's he talking about? He's saying we are one. No matter what your past or your upbringing, your ethnicity, your color, it doesn't matter. We are one in Christ. And so church should look like that. All right, I better move on or I'll preach a whole other sermon. Uh, verse 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right. So up to this point, Romans 9, we, we, Paul has been teaching the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, we talked last week about the tension of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. From verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 30 through 10, about verse 21, he begins to talk about man's responsibility. Now, I want to address this for a minute because one good question I had asked was, it seems like everything you're preaching um, contradicts what's, what's taught in Romans 10. And I'll say to you again, just like Romans 9 doesn't negate Romans 4, Romans 10 does not negate Romans 9. These are doctrines and, and principles, not principles, these are truths about God that we're to hold tight to, that he's entirely sovereign and that we have to believe upon Jesus to be saved. Now, uh, I, I want to walk through some of this just, just a little bit. I'm not the whole thing about this, but I, I just want to say that 
again, that's where the tension is to be held. We don't know exactly how those things hold together, but we know God is sovereign over salvation, and we know that we have to believe. We have to have faith in Christ. And I believe it to be a gift, but I also believe it to be we have to believe, right? We don't believe without God working, but we believe, and we will be held accountable for not believing. How all that works, that's for God to figure out. We just hold on to both very diligently. We hold on to both. Now, Paul, I think it's interesting that Paul goes from teaching about the sovereignty of God right into the man's responsibility as if he didn't see any contradictory. And I don't think he did. These things are, are compatible. They're side by side. Well, I don't have to reconcile friends, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And, and, and he saw them as both absolutely true. God is sovereign. God's grace on individuals for salvation is God's choice. But man is responsible, and we must believe. Now, how all that fleshes out is up to the Lord, right? But Paul told us that the reason that the Gentiles, and just another argument here, Paul tells us that the reason that the Gentiles are not being saved is because of God's sovereignty. But then he comes and says the reason the Jews are not being saved is because they've worshipped God the wrong way. They're both true. They're both true. Both because of God's sovereignty and they neglected to worship God through Jesus, the way they're supposed to be worshipped. So, what is it the Jews got wrong? How did Israel reject salvation? I think there's two reasons, two things they got wrong. First, they sought salvation in the wrong way. And then second, they rejected the Savior. All right, so first, how did they seek salvation in the wrong way? They sought salvation by works. Jews were passionate about keeping the law. Uh, I remember when, it, this was like 2005, I went to Israel. And I'm on the plane heading to Israel. It's a long flight. I forget how many hours now, 13 or something. I'm on that flight. And, and I'm on there, and I'm just kicked back, you know. I'm just like, all right, get this plane right over with. And then all of a sudden, at the exact same time, all these Orthodox Jews stand up in their seat. And this is like, Dude, this is like four or five years after 9-11. I'm like, I'm about to, let's roll. I'm about to, what's going on? Everybody stands up at the same time. They all go to, the, to face Jerusalem, what they thought. Well, I don't know how they figured that out. We're in the air, right? They're, they're, they're facing Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden they start, you know, and they've got, the, they've got their box on their head and on their forearm with the Deuteronomy in it, the verse in it, because they take literal, the, put it on your forehead forehead, forearm, and so they've, they've got the scripture tied, the boxes tied in their head, and then they start praying, and when they pray, they rock. Very passionate about keeping the law. Very passionate about the letter of the law and keeping the law. And, and that very same thing, that very same passion was the same passion that Jesus finds when he walks among them, that they, they were devout to the law, trying to keep the law. They, they, they prayed long prayers. They didn't eat unclean food. They, they kept the Sabbath. So, so much so, so, so much so that they refused to drag a chair across the floor because they would consider that plowing. They were that passionate about the law that they didn't want to be at, at, at all at odds with the law. They wanted to keep it. They wanted to earn righteousness. They wanted to be good enough. However, salvation, they missed it. They missed it. They missed it when God told Abraham that righteousness is accredited to you because of faith. They missed it. And so salvation has always been by faith alone, through Christ alone. 
And so they missed it. And so uh, the, the Jews thought their justification was, was granted to them because of their works, because of their nationalism, and then because of their works. Now, I think this is super relevant to our culture. Essentially, Paul is standing up and he is saying this. He's saying there's absolutely a wrong way to seek God. Now, our culture does not say that. Our culture, right, we, we tend to think that if someone is zealous about their religion, they're going to find their way to God, right? We, we're this all-inclusive, coexist, like you, you've heard it, right? You've heard it. There's, there's many paths up the mountain to God. You've heard that. You've heard that we are all God's children, right? All religion is the same. However, these statements are just not biblically accurate and therefore not true. doesn't matter what you feel. doesn't matter what our culture says. What matters is what is the absolute truth. And if this Bible is absolute truth, then all other religions and all other ways to God are the wrong ways to God. And here you have the Jews. They're very passionate. They're very zealous for their way, but they're absolutely wrong in the way that they're seeking God. And in the end, they do not get God. And we can be very zealous and passionate about the way we seek God, but in the end, we come to the realization that we don't get God. These Jews in their workspace salvation, I think they did two things. I think they underestimated sin, and I think they underestimated the cost uh, of, of salvation. And that's spot on with our culture today, right? If someone in here, if someone in our culture believes that in a works-based salvation, they essentially think that if they do enough good, then it will outweigh their bad. And if I do enough good things, then the scales will tip in my favor, and then God has to let me in. So, so all of that bad stuff I did, as long as I spend 10 years like doing some good things, giving some money to some charities, not killing anybody, then the scale will begin to tip. And as long as that scale is on the right side when I die, God has to honor that. This is a this is a completely misunderstanding of a biblical view of sin. The biblical view of sin is this. Yeah, you're on a scale, and there's a mountain of sin. And that no good you can do can even put a dent in that mountain. Matter of fact, any good you do outside of Jesus is considered sin. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So anything you do outside of faith is, a, a, is rebellion against God and therefore sin. So even the good works you do are mounting up a pile of sin for you. And it just piles up, piles up, piles up. There's no way any of us, we were born in the sin, we willfully committed sin. There's no way that any of us could do enough good to outweigh that bad. None of us. Not the most, uh, what we deem as the holy people of the world. Not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, none of them. If they go to heaven and they're depending on their own good works to outweigh their bad, they will go to hell. It's not about works. It's not about effort. We can't overcome the debt our, uh, our sin has paid before a holy God. And we demean the cross. We say, well, the cross is good. Jesus on the cross is good. But really, I need the cross and the stuff I need to do, like the good stuff, the good works, the Sunday school list, and I'll, I'll teach this class, and I'll help this person, and I'll check, 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 check. No. No. The only way is Christ and Christ alone. 
which is our bottom line for today. I don't know if they've been putting that up there or not, but that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. This is when the soul is. We, we stand on Christ alone. We did, a, we did a soul up a couple months ago where it was in faith alone and Christ alone. And, and so we believe that, uh, that the, the Bible continues to say that only through Jesus can salvation be had. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And any other way outside of Jesus is the wrong way to find God. You will not find God that way. Cannot. Now, why next? Why did the Jews reject the Savior? Uh, remember that Paul said that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Jesus. And the, and the Old Testament describes this picture of Jesus over and over, that, that he was a stumbling stone, that he was a, a rock of offense, that he was the stone that the builders rejected. Over and over, it continues to show this tripping over or rejection of Jesus. And so what does this mean? It means that the Jews did not want their Savior to look like Jesus. They didn't. They didn't want a suffering servant. They wanted a political hero. They didn't want a homeless wanderer. They wanted a pampered prince. They didn't want to be told to love their enemies. They wanted someone to come in and crush their enemies. They wanted a sword, and what Jesus brought was a cross. Jesus looked nothing like what they wanted. And so they stumbled. They said, we don't want that. They went so far as to say, we so don't want that that we will kill that. We will, we will put that idea of Jesus and we will, we will kill him. They didn't want Jesus. Now, uh, I think this is, uh, this is completely relevant to our culture. I think there will always be people that don't want the biblical Jesus they don't want the real Jesus. They want some kind of figment of their imagination that they made up in their head that, that goes absolutely contrary to his word. And they'll say, well, the, Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah, well, the Bible says he would. Well, Jesus would do this. Well, the Bible says he wouldn't. And so they construct this image of Jesus that isn't the biblical Jesus. And, 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 and it's not popular to say in our coexist culture, but if you don't believe in the biblical Jesus, Jesus will crush you and punish you forever. They, they, people want friendship with God, but don't realize that it, it, costs, it costs a cross. It costs to be separating, separating from sin in the world. People want a relationship with Jesus, but they don't want to die to get it. And that's what happens when we come to the cross. It's not a cute little Bible story, you know, precious moments or whatever. No, when we come, when we come to Christ for salvation, what happens is we die. We die to ourself. We die to our ambitions. We die to anything in us that is contrary to him. We come to the cross and say, I'm done. I die. You are Lord. I'm not Lord. You are king. I'm not king. And I die. Most people want Jesus without dying. They want Jesus and their sin. They want Jesus and the world. But it doesn't work that way. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that. Jesus, over and over, he says, if you put your hand in the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of me. Let the dead bury the dead. Come with me. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. We will either fall upon the stone and be broken unto salvation, or the stone will fall upon us and, and crush us and punish us forever. This is the Bible. <laughs> this is what is true in the Bible. Salvation by human righteousness always falls short. We need God's righteousness imputed to us. What does that mean? That means that Jesus lived a perfect life and was killed on a cross. And when he was on that cross, there was a great exchange. My sin put upon the cross and his righteousness put upon me. That's how I get to heaven. Because the righteousness that is Jesus's, his perfection is on me. You can't go to heaven if you're not perfect. That's why trying to work for it won't work. The only way we can be perfect is if Jesus atones for our sin, if he covers us, if we are in him, if we are under the cross, if we have been redeemed by Jesus. That's the only way any of us get to heaven. God looks upon us, and if he sees us, we're damned. If he sees Jesus, we're accepted. So the only way for salvation is Christ, him and him alone, to be covered by him and him alone, by faith, by his grace, in him and him alone. Now, we have to be careful not to try and bring our best efforts and combine them with the righteousness of Christ. This muddies the waters of his righteousness and it robs him of glory. We can't say, well, Jesus did a great work for me, but have you seen what I've done? I've done a lot of good for him. He's lucky to have me. It's like I've preached before. When we stand before God and he says, why shall I let you into heaven? And what's your answer then? This will know where your heart is. What's your answer? Is your answer, well, you know, I checked out that church in the middle school, went there a couple times, and uh, I even shook that old pastor's hand. He's crazy. Uh, no, that ain't going to get you in. <laughs> well, I did, uh, you know, I read my Bible. Uh, I, uh, I prayed this prayer at VBS. Um, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, supported my family, you, you know, raised my kids to be good, s solid citizens, America. <laughs> no, none of that's going to work. But if your answer is, I don't know why I'm here, the only thing I know is that Jesus has covered me, and it's because of his cross, it's because of his blood, it's because of his work, it's because of his righteousness, that's the only, his grace and mercy upon me is the only way I can even stand in your presence. That's how we get to heaven. Christ and him alone. No good works, no good deeds on our own, nothing. Christ and him alone. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Him. Now, that means for us that salvation is not a joint project where we travel hard and then we, 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 we let God do the rest. No, it's all God. Now, what does that mean for us? I think we need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the biblical Jesus? Is he the rock of salvation? Is he the solid rock that you can build a storm-proof house on? Is he the only way, the truth, and the life that leads to, to God? Or is he a stumbling stone? A Jesus that molds more to your preferences than the Bible. 
Is he weak? Is he foolish? The stench of death, is he unnecessary to you? Is he unnecessary to you? Can you live your life as if Jesus didn't exist? Is he unnecessary to you? Or is he everything? Is he the only way you come to God? Is he the only rock you have to stand on? We need to know that there's only one way to God, and God will not be mocked. And our coexist, all-inclusive culture, it's not the most popular thing to say, but anything outside of the cross does not get grace. Only grace and mercy that is to be had is found in Jesus alone. It's found in the cross alone. So all the other ways up the mountain, they will be struck down. All the other cultural concepts of Jesus that's not a biblical concept of Jesus will be crushed. The stone will stumble them. They will stumble over it, and they will be crushed by the stone. There is only one way to God, and it is Jesus And there is a right way to him. He is the only right way. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's it. No other way will find God. Only Jesus. Only him alone. So will you believe today? Believe that he is the only way today. Maybe in your life you have been trusting in other things. You've been depending upon other things. You haven't completely put everything, all your stock, all your, everything you've got in the cross. Maybe you haven't ever come to the point to where you come face to face with Jesus and, he, and you die. <laughs> you, you lay down your life before him and let him raise you up. That's what it takes to be saved. He is the only way to God. This isn't, a, this isn't a cute story. This is life and death eternal. This, this, isn't, this isn't a precious moment. <laughs> this is be wary of your soul. Be alert. No, are you in the cross or not? I pray that you would be saved today. If you're here and you, you have trusted in your works or you've trusted in some other false religion, that you would come to the cross today and be saved. Let me pray for you. Father, uh, would you you just continue to preach in our hearts, Father, that you are, you have made a way. You've made the only way. In your grace, in your mercy, though, though we deserved the same punishment as Sodom and Gomorrah, you have made a way to be saved, to escape judgment. And you, you went to the cross to buy back your bride. And just like Gomer did nothing. She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it. And Hosea said, I'll give everything I have for her. That's exactly what you do for us. 
You gave everything. Your life. To buy back a bride that didn't deserve it or earn it. You bought us when we were prostituting ourselves out to other gods. How great the grace and the mercy of God. How great the compassion of God that would take a people that were not your people and make us your people. You've given us the right to be called children of God. And I pray, Father, that if there be anyone in here that is resting on anything that's outside the cross, would you draw them? Would you convict them? Would you save them? And for your bride, your church, may we be bold about standing on the cross. And would it ignite in us a zeal to preach the gospel to all peoples and all nations. There's a right way to God. It's only through the cross, only through Jesus. We love you, Jesus, and we... We, we want more. We want to know more. We want, we, we, we want to love you more, Father. We want to absolutely treasure you more. Because we know we fall short. But we cling to you. We cling to the fact that our sins were killed on that cross. We cling to your sacrifice. We cling to your power and blood. It's our only hope. It's our only hope. Continue to help us to believe that. Help our unbelief, Father. We trust in you, Jesus, and we want more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.